0: Hello and thank you for tuning into Sideline Story, your destination for sports news, analysis and discussions. I'm your host Brandon Yates and today I'm joined by my co-hosts Yang Guang, Tian Yu and Fuyu and we are happy to have everybody on the show today once again and we will be talking about the latest ongoings at the Qatar 2022 FIFA World Cup. I think after the last 16 set of results and everything that's been happening on and off the field, there's plenty to discuss, so let's get going right now. Um, Yang Guang, I'd like to start with you. How has the refereeing quality been so far, um, in your opinion? What do you think of the VAR system in Qatar?
1: Yeah, uh, we've seen some differences in terms of um, how referees officiate the games. Um, the additional time... The stoppage time is unusually long uh, this time at the World Cup. Some games could, you know, have uh, 20 minutes of stoppage time, two halves combined. Uh, it's not really seen in regular games, um, in European leagues or the Champions League. But I guess this is, um, this is a good change um, in terms of um, keeping the games fair. You know, some teams would deliberately waste the time with the substitutions, goalkeepers delaying the kicks. Sometimes even players have enough fake cramps on the pitch. It's it's equitable to keep this kind of time on the referee's clock and uh, tell those who waste the time. It's useless under my watch. Um, I really hope this measure could be kept in the club competitions in the future, especially like in the Champions League. Uh, There could be some really dramatic moments produced with the additional time prolonged. Uh, That's why we could see the classic moment of how Iran scored two goals in the final two minutes to beat Wales in the group stage. Um, And in terms of the VAR technology used in the game, I have to give credits to it when it found that um, Japan's second goal against uh, Spain wasn't out of play because just a bit of the ball was still on the line. Uh, That was a good call. Uh, then I personally think the so called semi automated offside system is so far a failed test um, from the opening game. Uh, look, I don't know if fans still remember, but Ecuador's offside, when they scored the first goal in the opening game, was impossible to identify by naked eyes. Uh, when you use the VAR system to zoom in the play that much and uh, finds out the offside, which occurs by just one toe's length, it's already not football. Um, offside in f- football is not tennis or badminton. We can use Hawkeye technology to clearly identify the short points, uh, like what happened in Japan's game. Um, it's certainly too strict for offside calls. Um, it's the same case for some physical contacts on the pitch. To me, The penalty to Argentina in the group game against Mexico when the goalkeeper jumped into Messi, that was not a valid penalty at all. And it's just a normal contact. But when you put it under the microscope, every contact could be illegal. There's still so much the VAR system could improve.
0: Yeah, I think in terms of refereeing decisions and VAR and that kind of thing, I think I agree with you in terms of the extra time. It'll be interesting to see what effect that has on teams' tactics and in terms of time-wasting and the ability to score late winners and that kind of thing, and to see if that flows over into, you know, European club competitions like the Champions League, et cetera, and see if that, you know, reduces time-wasting and, yeah, increases um, late match drama and et cetera. But in terms of, yes, the added views on um, contact and, you know, every little bit of contact becoming illegal, I agree with you, it is becoming a little bit crazy because, like you said, I mean, every bit of contact that is even slightly off the ball can just be, you know, considered foul play. Just even bumping into a, a, a player, even accidentally, could be considered, you know, a foul at some point. So I think it is going a little bit too far. And one incident that sticks out in my brain, I think it was... Brazil versus Switzerland where Richarlison got Brazil a penalty and he was, the Swiss player was trying to clear the ball um, and kick the ball out of the penalty box and wasn't even looking behind him and Richarlison came up from behind and then instead of kicking the ball, he kicked Richarlison and Richarlison kind of threw himself in front of the player and that led to the player kicking the um, Richarlison instead of the ball. Even though he couldn't see that someone was coming towards him, and that was still given given as a penalty, and I thought that player had no idea what was going on behind him, but it was still considered a foul. So that's another incident where I thought that just seemed like a you know I, I think it was um, in terms of the law potentially the correct decision, but it still seemed really um, you know a bit of injustice for for that team and that player that had to concede that penalty. So I think that's also something that needs to be looked at. Is that no matter how good VAR is in terms of pointing out everything that's going on on the field. I think that referees' interpretations of laws and uh, that kind of thing are, is, is still an issue because, you know, every referee kind of sees things differently, I guess, and there's, you know, there's always going to be, you know, human error and interpretations of, cer- of certain situations because you can't write down every specific situation in a set of rules. So, I think that's always going to be um, something that's going to be talked about, unfortunately, no matter how good technology gets. So hopefully that's something that, you know, the groups of referees can work on as we move forward in all sorts of tournaments, whether it be the World Cup, Champions League and so on. Um, Tianyu, from your perspective, um, were there any other refereeing decisions or VAR system decisions that were, you know, worthwhile talking points or good decisions or something, you know, questionable in your mind?
2: yeah i i agree with you guys i think uh, uh first of all about the long additional time as a football fan it's actually a good thing to see uh so much additional time given in the match think of a match with three goals scored a celebration normally takes uh one or two minutes so with three goals scored you lo- you will lose five or six minutes the extra given time is actually calculated uh, carefully by the referees and it's a good thing to uh, have this time just enjoy watching the game and uh, about the vr system i think yeah it's it's good for the referees to help make the match become fairer but it is also having a very negative impact on the players and the smoothness of the game when there is a go you know both players and the audience have to wait for the vr ruling before they can celebrate And uh, sometimes the linesmen don't raise the flag until they receive the instruction from the the assistant referees, which is very common in this uh, this year's tournament. And that can cost a lot of energy for the players because, you know, they have to run back and forth. And yeah, I agree with Yang Guang. The rulings on offsides are sometimes too harsh. Many of the cancelled goals are controversial just like uh when Yang mentioned the one scored by Lautaro martinez in the match between argentina and saudi arabia and also <clears throat> some of the rulings on um penalties are also uh kind of unacceptable so overall i think the vr system is quite helpful in ensuring the impartiality of the match but i hope uh the system can be employed in a more correct and efficient manner in the future
0: yeah, I think that's also a definite talking point is the efficiency and the effect that it has on the players. Like you said, I think the expended energy when, you know, waiting for an offside decision or, you know, kind of just just seeing um, the elation and then the disappointment that comes from, you know, potentially scoring a late winner that's only ruled out three or four minutes later or when the referee finally, the assistant referee finally lifts his flag for an offside or something like that. So I think, you know, that's, I guess you know, a a few of the cons in terms of what fans and players have to deal with in terms of the improved um, decision making that we see from, you know, the likes of VAR and um, other bits of technology. I mean, we've seen it in other sports like rugby, for example, I can think of when, you know, sometimes a decision in terms of um, scoring a try can take up to five to 10 minutes and can, you know, need three or four sets of eyes to make a decision, and even then sometimes um, an incorrect decision can be made or a decision can be made and that's, you know, uh, up up for interpretation because ultimately, no matter how much technology is involved or no matter how many eyes are on a decision, the final decision comes down to, you know, one person on the field, the referee, you know, regardless of what the sport is. So. I think that's always going to be an issue. It'll be interesting to see over the years of technology or you know um, refereeing decisions off the field can improve what we are currently seeing in all sports, I suppose. But um, at this point in time, I think that um, there are some definite downsides to um, you know the improved decision making and I guess the improved fairness of quality of refereeing that we're seeing. I guess it is you know increasing a certain level of frustration sometimes. Um, But going back to a couple of the teams and some of the, you know, the shocks that we've seen in the World Cup so far, of course, um, Germany exiting so early was a massive shock around the world. And so was Spain's. Um, I mean, the fact that they lost to Morocco, um, you know, an African nation playing really well in the FIFA World Cup, you know, despite that. And, you know, despite the fact that Morocco have one or two um, phenomenal players, it was still a massive shock to see Spain exit so early, considering that they had really performed quite well in the early stages of the World Cup. But um, for you, from your perspective, the fact that Spain has now exited the World Cup at such an early stage, do you think this might be the end of the tiki-taka style of play that we've seen from Spain?
3: Uh, That's an interesting question. To begin with, I never particularly liked the tiki-taka style. Um, I like more fast-paced and straightforward attacks and counterattacks in the football game. And many people say the football that this Spanish squad played with uh, played with at the World Cup was useless. Tiki Taka and. I think there's nothing wrong with the style itself, although I'm not a big fan. Um, the question is whether they're just playing Tiki taka for the same for the sake of it or were they really going for go with it. Um, Spain played too far down the field and did not efficiently pass the ball towards the target and it didn't matter that they had 75 percent possession or or was it 70 percent um anyway they held the ball for the majority of the game but without efficiency it's really is nothing and efficiency is what i keep complaining about in a lot of the football matches today not only at the world cup um And my impression is that English clubs are better at it than other teams. Um, Pep Guardiola's Manchester City, for example. Although Guardiola is the founder of Tiki Taka, uh, maybe he didn't actually invent it. He glorified the style at Barcelona. Um, Anyway, he is largely associated with the style of play. And at Man City, they can afford to play with this approach because they, they've they got explosive and um, fast strikers that can deliver the final strike. Um, and actually Guardiola himself also thinks that passing the ball without moving forward has no purpose. And I think if Spain or any other team that chooses to stick with Tiki Taka they better find a way to improve their efficiency which I think it's more important than possession. And um a team may have the ball for the majority of the game, but the other team need only one one chance. They need the other team to make only one mistake to score a goal. And here one example that just came off the top of my head was the Champions League semifinals between Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid in the 2015 and 16 season. It was Guardiola's Bayern Munich, and they had 33 shots in the first leg on the road, but lost that game 1-0. And um, that victory from Atletico Madrid ended up making a big difference in the tie. So a highly explosive and efficient striker is more useful than the whole team that's playing tiki-taka in my opinion.
0: For you, you bring up such an important point there, efficiency. I think that, and also bringing up Pep Guardiola and um, that Bayern Munich match, but particularly the Manchester City side that he's currently working with and just the importance of efficiency, especially when playing that tiki-taka style is so crucial because if you think of City and um, the fact that they are able to hold on to possession, which I still think is quite important, but I agree, not as important as efficiency, but being able to hold on to the ball and take it forward Especially when you've got the players that have the ability to look up and do so. So, if I think of the the likes of Bernardo Silva and Kevin De Bruyne and the you know um, Ilkay Gundogan, I think players like that that you know have the ability to hold on to the ball, but at the same time be able to run forward with the ball and create chances for the likes of um, Alvarez and Erling Haaland at Manchester City. I think that that is where Pep Guardiola has you know seen the evolution of his style, and that's why. Manchester City are so successful at this point in time. Yes, we haven't seen their success in the uh, Champions League yet, but in terms of their dominance of the league, I think that's a huge element that was added to that style. It's just the efficiency going forward and being able to finish off chances. And I think that's something that Spain and other sides um, could struggle with and have struggled with in terms of playing that style and then uh, finishing off chances. That's extremely, extremely important. But of course, another reason why we potentially saw Spain exit at such an early stage is because Morocco have just been playing incredibly well um, and exceeding expectations. And I think they are the team that everybody's talking at this point in time. And, you know, as we've seen in previous World Cups, there's always a surprise package, you know, a team that performs particularly well and surprises everybody. So, for example, from my perspective, I mean, the fact that Croatia got all the way to the final in 2018, a, a lot of it had to do, of course, with Luka Modric's brilliance. But that was also just something that was hugely... A massive surprise in terms of you know getting through to that final, and uh, you know ultimately losing to France. But the fact that they got there was incredible, and I think that at this World Cup, Morocco is definitely that team that everybody's talking about in terms of a, as a surprise package. But Yang Guang, um, just from what you've seen of Morocco so far, what would you say is behind their current level of success?
1: Um, yeah, it seems like um, Morocco was forgotten ahead of the World Cup in Qatar, when people talked about Japan reaching the last 16 from the group of death, few people talked about Morocco, also advanced from a very difficult group, a group with Croatia and Belgium, and, and they knocked out Spain. Then some people would call Morocco the biggest dark horse. Um, yes, if you if you lo- take a look at history, um, yes, Morocco is always an underdog, but um, for this tournament in Qatar, uh, they actually not. Um, The market value of this national squad is about 230 million euro. They've nurtured a great deal of um, quality players, even stars like Achraf Hakimi, Nusem, Masrawi, um, Hakim Ziyech. And I I think now the country um, really focused on talent cultivation um, in the past decade or so. It really paid off this year in Qatar. Uh, The country has demonstrated a strong desire to continue development, making resources um, available to the youth sites that uh, represent the future of the country's football. Um, Actually, in July this year, uh, Morocco just hosted a FIFA Talent Development Scheme Workshop um, as part of the Talent Development Plan launched by FIFA's Chief of Global Football Development, Arsene Wenger, in 2020. Look, they've already got a decent team, but um, they are now switching to look for the next generation of potential stars already. Um, I I think that's why Morocco could trigger the upset at World Cup.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, just since I've been watching them, I think that they do have quality in key positions. And some of the names that you mentioned really are top-class players. And I think they've also got some... Uh, you know, talented players that we weren't aware of before the um, before the FIFA World Cup began, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't performing really well for their clubs or, you know, before the World Cup began. So, yeah, I think it was still a surprise to see, um, you know, Morocco knock out Spain and, you know, playing at the level that they're playing at. But, um, yeah, I think a huge part of their success is, you know, a combination of their hard work, their the the top quality performances of their star players that we already know and also the good the good performances from players that we weren't really um aware of you know another example would have been japan where they didn't necessarily have too many star names in terms of um, names that everybody around the world recognizes but they still had a lot of quality on the pitch and i think that we're seeing um something similar from morocco but obviously um at the more successful rates well at this point in time it remains to be seen how far They can actually go, but it's looking really good for them so far. Someone that it's not looking that good for at this point in time is Cristiano Ronaldo. And Tianyu, you and I are big Cristiano Ronaldo fans, so I think this is something that we can talk about right now. Look, controversy just seems to be following this guy around um, in the last year or so. He, He seems to be struggling mentally. He seems to be battling with every coach that he comes into contact with. And I just think that there's a lot of... Uncertainty surrounding him in terms of his international future, his club future, but just looking at where he finds himself at this point in time. Of course, he was on the bench for the game against Switzerland, and the man that replaced him, I think it's Goncalo Ramos, um, goes and scores a hat trick and you know produces one of the best performances of the World Cup so far. But there's there's a lot of debate about why Cristiano Ronaldo was on the bench. Just from your perspective, why do you think that he was put onto the bench, and do you think that he will remain on the bench?
2: Yeah, man, I agree with you. As a Ronaldo fan, it really sucks to see Ronaldo being put to the the bench. But uh, after watching the game, uh, we can see why Fernando Santos made this decision. Ramos, who is 21, has proved that he deserves to be put on the starting lineup. You know, apart from the first sensational goal, I think he has got something uh, called great positional stance. He created a lot of trouble to the defensive line of the Swiss team, simply by his running without uh, getting the ball. And he just kept giving pressure to them by pressing forward. And uh, sadly by comparison, when Cristiano Ronaldo was on the pitch, uh, the Portuguese team seemed to have fewer attacking strategies. He has lost his speed and stamina. So I think he couldn't sprint back and forth like Ramos did, as we can see in the game. So we can see, him in the penalty area for most of the time waiting for a cross from his teammates and uh, also he's not as flexible as his younger counterparts Um, even though we can see ronaldo is still training hard and his shooting is still accurate as we can see the cancelled goal he scored due to offside but we still have to admit that he is getting older and may not be suitable for such uh, for such a competitive occasion I think the one of the few things that he can do is to make great use of his limited time on the pitch and enjoy the game. And although we we won't see Ronaldo frequently on the starting lineup, uh, it's still very pleasant for a Portuguese fan to see so many talented players that can help the team win.
0: Yeah, I think in terms of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Portugal, I think that um, yeah, if Cristiano Ronaldo kind of sorts out his mental state and also. Hopefully, as his career progresses, maybe in the next uh, year or so, if he wants to remain, you know, at the highest level, hopefully he becomes more prepared to have an impact off the bench or just be an out-and-out striker as opposed to trying to, you know, run all over the pitch and play down the wings um, and conserve his energy, then I think he'll have a much greater impact. And also, if he places the importance of the team over his own um, success. I think that will also be great, particularly for Portugal. I think that there's a lot of young players, like you mentioned, you know, Ramos and Felix and a couple of others that need to be nurtured. And hopefully he's taken them under his wing. And I think that if he does everything that I just mentioned, then I think um, he and Portugal can go on and have a really fantastic World Cup and potentially even win it. So that will be um, interesting to see what Ronaldo's... um, play or position will be in the Portugal squad as it progresses, as they progress potentially through the World Cup and also what his role will be in club football once this competition comes to an end. Yang Guang, quickly, before we end this episode, are there any massive talking points in China right now in terms of the World Cup game since the last 16? Um, Neymar.
1: I don't know why, but Neymar suddenly became a trendy topic with his um, dances on the pitch. Chinese online um, influencers have imitated his dances all over social media. Many people start to follow Neymar's performances, get to know his inspiring stories, as um, how he grew up from the slum dog to a global football icon. Um, uh, look, and I think it's the um, it's the beauty of World Cup and and these stars. Uh, they let more people know about football and the charm of football. Um, I became a football fan after watching Oliver Kahn at the 2002 World Cup. I believe Neymar and other players' highlighting moments um, have already attracted kids around the globe to fall in love with football.
0: Absolutely. I think Neymar is just one of those characters where, you know, no matter what he's doing on the pitch, whether it be his footballing brilliance or his entertaining side in terms of his dancing, his laughing, his casual manner or whether it's the drama that he brings from off the field, he's just one of those guys that just attracts attention. And I think that, um, you know, as football fans, or even just people that enjoy watching sports or being entertained, I think having characters like that in any sport is important. And I hope that's something that football and governing bodies also take note of. You know, I mean, we've seen so much strictness in terms of player celebrations and kind of what they do on the field. And I think that we all need to remember that football is a game that's meant to entertain. And we should not hinder um, the entertainers on the field. And I think Neymar is one of those guys that is just a born entertainer. I think that he's going to always be talked about and it's great to see that in China. But that is all we have time for on this episode of Sideline Story. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, we will be back next week with our latest Talking Point and we'll see you then.